Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike, along with the post-COVID recovering Mootloo. Yeah, yeah, feeling good, feeling good. Still have the last few remnants. Yeah, can sort of uh, hear it, hear the little congestion. A in little you. bit, yeah, yeah, last last sort of little bits of it, but feeling better for the most part. It's still like, I don't know if you experienced this when you had it, like, like pressure. Did you feel pressure in your it, ears when... So my head is it's sort of weird. It's different for everybody. I know COVID talk. There's, there hasn't been a lot of this. On yeah. There, oh, right? yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> uh, my head like throbbed and I was more tired than I've ever been in my entire life for about two days. I wasn't like congested, congested in the, the classic way. So I didn't have the ear thing. No pressure. I wasn't initially. This is like the tail end. Originally, it was like much more of a cough. Mm-hmm. And actually I had a fever and then I felt the fatigue. But this is like... Now I'm feeling better for the most part, but at the, in the home stretch of feeling better, then it kind of like made me nasally for some reason. What's kind of funny is that we record a couple weeks in advance, so this will be the first time. Oh, wait a minute. Will, yeah, this is coming up. Well, this well, is the yeah, first time is... we've acknowledged that we didn't do the live show. <laughs> right, because that episode came out uh, this well, week. The, no, yeah. but that, but yeah, but we didn't say anything about that because that was recorded a few weeks before. Right, 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 right. So that was recorded before we did the interview with David from correct, Gang of Youth. Correct. Right, right, right. So uh, we yeah, never so did the, a live yeah, show. This is all out of sync. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the live show is rescheduled for November twentieth. Is that nineteenth? Uh, November November nineteenth. Yeah. yeah. We we wanted to make sure Mutlu had enough time to recover, so he, yeah, we put it six months in. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, it. Is kind of absurd. I apologize that. <laughs> There were a lot of people hyped for that too. I but uh, you know I think a lot of the people that were planning to come, it's it's good. The venue was great about it. I'll just mention all this now, even though this is going to be come out a few weeks from now, and it's like a month <laughs> removed from when all this happened. But uh, but yeah, if, uh, we mentioned this online. I know the venue sent a message to all the ticket holders. But if you had a ticket for the show, you can just use that ticket for the new date. So it's all gravy. It's all good. We'll. Uh, We'll, we'll stay free, my goose it up in November. In November. Yeah. Uh, this is, oh, and we welcome, I, I, did we mention, we have a producer now. Molly, is your microphone on? It is. My fan is back on. That's why I turned off the mic. <laughs> All right. Well, Mo- Molly is in a, uh, Molly has a noisy computer. So uh, until until we're able to solve that, her mic won't be on all that often. But we welcome Molly Dolan, who now produces the Carl. And we, we felt like we needed somebody, um, you know, another influence. I could feel like our, first of all, somebody to produce the pod, which is... Um, which was weighing heavily on my brain, but also I could feel us going down into the nineties, the nineties hole as Moot and I are yeah, the same exact Which we age. are again this week actually. Yeah, so yeah. So yeah, we gotta we, get out of the nineties. So we were counting on you, Molly, to bring other influence into the podcast so we don't we don't end up doing the best of ninety two and then the best of ninety three <laughs> and then the best of ninety two. I guess it has kind of been that. So Yeah. Yeah, just some fresh ideas, a fresh perspective on some stuff, because as much as we try to like branch out and I with the listener picks, we get a lot of different, a whole range of different types of artists and albums and everything. It's still nice to just have something that's outside of our bubble, because I think I have certain instinct to pick certain things and and same same for you, Spike. So, you know, so welcome, Molly. Molly produced the last two podcasts you heard. I did not touch. Uh, She did it all. So thank you and welcome. Let me hear the fan again. One more time. Thank you. There it is. <laughs> it's so bad. It, it's like a tribute to AU. 
you that's know, right. I like, hey, man, this is, always this is noisy. Part, this is part of it. There this it is. is part of it. Yeah. I'm just going to go on mute. Okay, it's so bad. Uh, we are a music appreciation podcast. We typically do two albums per pod. We love the album format, love the album, and try to turn each other on. So when I say music appreciation, you know, we're usually listening to one of the albums for the first time or haven't listened to it in a while. One always comes from me or Moot, and then one will come from a listener. Two albums this week are, uh, oh, and I also, also had something else we had to talk about as well. So, uh, Two albums this week. Mootloo's choice this week is Brand New Heavy's Heavy Rhyme Experience Volume 1, which came out in 1992. Of course and it did. Of course yeah, it did. Right. See? Yeah. There it is. <laughs> I'm a 90s. I'm a 90s guy. Well, we're both 90s. You both are. We both are. You know? And then Molly not even born until... Two th- 2000? 98. We're born in the late 90s. 98. Yeah. There you go. So, right at the tail end. Right at the right tail, at the tail end. end. Yep. See, because right. I was born at the age 79, so I'm, I'm a 70s man, because I actually, because I was technically born in the 70s. See? Well, but then you're not a 70s man. But you know me. You know that I am, though. You are a 70s man. Yeah, that's, you know, that's you know, true, that's, that's yeah. I'm more 70s than anything else. And the uh, listener pick is The Cure's Three Imaginary Boys from 1979, suggested by Apple Podcast user Carson MVP. The subject line is, give the people, me and, Ky- me and Kyrie, give the people <laughs> what they want, a full review of Me and Kyrie by the great Tony T. My full album recommendation is a favorite of my brother and mine, Three Imaginary Boys by The Cure. Would love also some more Front Bottoms analysis. We did do a Front Bottoms record, but I would love to get the Front Bottoms on, actually. I love the Front Bottoms. That would be great. Is that, Ky- I, did I do a cover of one of, I think that was a record did. that I. You did, uh, you did Au Revoir. Right, 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 Which, right, right. Yeah, you remember that too. Great tune. That great is a great tune. tune. Yeah. yeah, And he wanted a me and Kyrie. If I can find <laughs> me and Kyrie on my phone, I will. A certainly, classic, a classic, an immediate, an instant classic. Yeah, a Tony T. So me and Kyrie. If if you're not a Ricky listener, I know a lot of our listeners are, but many aren't, and not every Ricky listener has heard every pod. Amos Lee appeared on the Ricky, then Tony Tony to Tony took the reins for a little bit and had written a song about his relationship with Kyrie Irving and then recorded, uh, do you want to play it? We can, I can play it. Might as well play it. All right, here we go. Me and Kyrie. (laughs) We're a couple cool cats. We both know the truth. That the earth's really flat. Flat, no curve. Me and Kyrie. <laughs> Yo, we're best friends. We both know the Antarctica is where the world ends. Yo, me and Kyrie. And KD makes three. We're having cuddle parties on the Lower East Side. Don't tread on me. Yo, don't tread on me. Me and Kyrie. We make a good team. We like sitting at home burning sage with no vaccines. <laughs> Fuck them vaccines. <laughs> Wow. So the the greatest thing about that song to me 
is that although it is obviously a comedy song, it's got a good, it get, it's an earworm. It gets in your head. Oh, yeah. It's hooky. And see, I, that's the first time I listened to it in pure audio. Yep. Because, you know, he sent it to the video to me originally. Yep. And uh, I recall in the video, Tony T was scantily clad, if I'm not Yeah, mistaken. yeah. Tony yeah, T's. He, he said he's a naturist, I guess. Is that yes, right? his, his privates right. are exposed in the video yeah. of it. Yeah. He's a puppet, so it's not as, uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't like startle you in quite the same way. It's a great tune. I think... I, even the the guitar playing is like the slightly out of tune guitar playing is pretty perfect. Yeah. I think, and I would if you haven't heard it or I, this is a watching one. I would go to YouTube or Spotify where you gotta the video. Got to see is. the video. You got to yeah, see the video. I, I actually don't think we were on Spotify video by that point, so I think it was just on YouTube. That appearance was one of the most unhinged appearances. <laughs> I think no in surprise the there. No, it was. Completely fucking crazy. So a great tune. Love me and Kyrie. Exceptional tune. And I'll say it's all based on a true story. That's the other thing. Yes. As absurd as it is. Yes. You can hear the whole story on the pod of when Tony T met Kyrie in a, a crystal Oh, I, that store. part I didn't know about. It. He met Kyrie. I didn't yeah, know so he met Kyrie. He wow. met Kyrie at a crystal store and they uh. became friends and they are going to release a children's movie called Me and Kai. And this is the I I missed that the part theme of it. song. Correct. Wow. This wow. Is the so the theme song to the children's movie, Me and Kyrie, is going to end up fuck them vac is going to end with fuck them vaccines, asshole. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. That's great. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the parents will be thrilled about that. <laughs> but but uh, I will say this though, you know, it's interesting. It's nice to see Tony T branch out because, I mean, on the Ricky. Tony T and Tommy from Down the Shore have done duets before, but they've they always have been done duets. But they've always been they've always been covers like Kokomo, right? You know, right. The legendary oh, Kokomo, the, right? The Kokomo cover was huge, was so, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to see. But the evolution evolution of Tony T now he's kind of you know writing original songs. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Tommy meanwhile has been filling in on the text line on WIP. Oh, but, has he? Yes, was he has. Been. Oh, because Battlehead didn't battle. Battle anytime Battle can't yeah. do it. Tommy from down the shore does it. Yes. Uh, last week I think I did it. Uh, not I mean I, but me. Tommy I mean, did it. I mean Tommy from down the shore did it three times last week. But there was some talk a few months ago mm -hmm. of a Tommy from down the shore puppet, so oh. that so that there could be a Tommy, you know, a Tony T Tommy from down the shore hoagie hour puppet hour. Oh. I think the puppets may be stuck on the assembly line right now. I'm not sure what's. There's going to be some production delays, but there has been some talk of it. So somewhere down the road, you know, you could have like supply chain is there. supply chain is choking out the puppet supply to the yeah, US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just stuck. It's, there's delays with everything. It's just the world we live in right now. Yeah, but wow. that song is a is a marvelous song, and you really, if you want to get the full effect, you have to watch the video. That that's one all I would say. million percent. You got to watch yes. the video, and then you got to hear a story <laughs> about joining a cult, and then. Ending up in D.C. It's a very, it is a completely unhinged performance and it is is worth seeing. I could see Mike, my co-host on the Ricky, was legitimately worried for Amos's career as that performance was going on. But hasn't like, that, every time we've gone on the Ricky, it's as unhinged. Tony Chi and Tommy, I think maybe Mike has some level of concern. Yes, he because does. the the whole thing is like it, it's there's there's always a little bit of uncertainty in every. Appearance. But that's 
the greatest, the greatest. Look, if you're not worried that you're going to lose your career a little bit, it's not funny enough. Like, yeah, you got to take, some, you gotta take, some, you gotta take some chances. Take some chances. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the albums. Which one do you want to do first? I'm just going to let you pick. Cure or... Oh, um, we're not doing a nah, flip or anything? No, nah, I don't uh, believe in the coin flip this time. I actually don't. So you're going to pick Cure uh, or Brand New Heavies? Uh, I'll leave it to you. You, you go ahead. This, I, is, I this have, is messing up the whole rhythm. We do a coin flip. Neither fine. Presents the we'll side. do a coin flip. You I have bastard. decision fatigue. You know what? Molly, pick. If you're... <laughs> turn on your microphone. Which one are we doing do first? The brand new heavies first. or the cure? Do the cure. Yeah. Okay. Molly says the cure. See, I have... I tell my wife all the time. I was like... I'll, I'll be like, where do you want to eat? And she's like, where do you want? And I was like, I, I always... She hates this. I have decision fatigue. I don't, I don't want to make decisions. I'm the same way. I don't like... I don't know if it's fatigue. It's just like... I... I've never liked making those kind of simple decisions. I don't I, mind making bigger decisions, but small decisions give me a like lot of it. anxiety. Yeah. All right, the cure. I've never listened to this album, even though I've attended a Cure show and would have considered myself at least a reasonable fan of The Cure. Three Imaginary Boys came out in 1979. It is their debut album. This is, I listened to it. This is not at all The Cure that I know. It, it didn't sound at all like The Cure I know. The first Cure song that I ever, it probably wasn't the first Cure song that I ever heard, but the first ever one that I liked was Fascination Street because it was on MTV and Disintegration was the first album like that I became familiar with The Cure. I saw them, I think it was called The Prayer Tour. I remember seeing that tour. And then Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me was the album before that, which I was familiar with. And I would have, before listening to this album, would have simply described The Cure if I were to say genre as like a postmodern goth synth band, like in the, in the world of Depeche Mode, but a little gothier and darker. Fair, right? For yeah. that era, yeah. But this album is a post-punk album, is straight up 100% post-punk. And though you can hear this album in the later stuff, it really is just entirely different and, and not what I expected. Cure from England, Basically, if you look at the entirety of The Cure, it's Robert Smith. They've had members going in and out, but the one constant has been Robert Smith. The three founding members of The Cure, who are Mick Dempsey, Lowell Tallhurst, and Robert Smith, all went to middle school together. And that's where they first first started playing. And they ended up in a five-piece band called Malice that did like rock covers. And then Malice changed their name to Easy Cure, and Easy Cure became a, an original band that signed uh, to a record deal with a German record label in 77. There was so much frustration between the label and the Cure as to what they wanted them to be. The label basically let them out of the contract. The Easy Cure's singer at the time was a guy named Peter O'Toole, not the actor Peter O'Toole leaves the band, they try out a bunch of different singers and Robert Smith becomes the singer eventually because they can't find any singers that they like. So then a demo of theirs gets to Polydor Records 
and they get signed to an imprint of Polydor and their first single comes out in 1978, Killing an Arab, which is not on their debut. That's the title, that's the title of a song? Yeah, it is not. Wow. It is not Goodness a racist gracious. song. It is based on a on some novel. It is not is not what it what it is called. It is, right. You, that's that's a jarring title. Yes, I have killing, to say, killing an Arab is certainly jarring. <laughs> Well, maybe that's why I didn't wind up on the on the on the album. I think it makes uh, sense. It makes yeah, sense. Probably, probably a good choice. Uh, you know, so they go into the studio to record the album, and the Cure at this point have like very little recording experience, and it leads the engineer of the album, which is a guy named Mike Hedges, and their manager and producer, a guy named Chris Perry, who also signed. Susie and the Banshees, and also signed The Jam to sort of direct the outcome of the album. Like a, a very heavy hand in the production of the album, of which songs end up on the album. And to this day, I've read like four different interviews, Robert Smith, unhappy with the debut album. Really? Um, Interesting. Un yeah, unhappy with the song selection, unhappy with the sound of it, unhappy with the direction. And honestly, though though they evolved over time, there is a, a pretty hard turn in the next record compared to this one. I f there was a, an interview in 04 with Rolling Stone where Robert Smith went through all the Cure albums. And here's what he said about this one. I was writing songs for the first album for a period of about two or three years. I wrote 1015 Saturday Night and Killing an Arab when I was about 16. And we recorded the album when I was 18. So I wasn't really convinced of some of the songs. The pop songs like Boys Don't Cry are naive to the point of insanity. But considering the age I was and the fact that I had done nothing apart from go to school, no real life experience, everything was taken from books, some of them are pretty good. The Jam were recording their album during the day and we used to sneak in at night and use their equipment. We knew the bloke who was looking after it to record our album. We just borrowed tape and stuff. The first album is my least favorite Cure album. Obviously there are my songs, and I was singing, but I had no control over any other aspect of it. The production, the choices of the songs, the running order, the artwork, it was all kind of done by Perry without my blessing. And even at that young age, I was very pissed off. I had dreamed of making an album and suddenly we were making it and my input had been disregarded. I decided from that day, we would always pay for ourselves and therefore retain total control. And they did. Now, not every time when an artist doesn't like an album in, in retrospect or a song, I think we had talked about this before with like Aerosmith and Angel, and there are songs that people think are great and they love that the, the band doesn't like. And especially over time, you know, as the, the person ages, maybe the music doesn't hold up in the same way. I only like the song, if I'm being honest on this one, I'm not a post-punk guy, though there were moments in the post-punk albums we did that, that I was able to grasp onto. It doesn't really like, there's something sonically that, that I don't love. The only songs that I really dug on this album in a way that I would go back to 
are the couple of songs that have like those shades of darkness that you would see later on in their career that sort of peek through. And I think Another Day is one song on there that the lyrics are, are pretty pretty basic and obvious in their darkness, like the winter in watercolors and shades of gray. And the title track, I think, has some of that as well. I just thought it was so interesting how different they seemed. Like, have you ever, did you listen to this album before? Were you familiar with this album? No, I wasn't. And I was thinking about it from a, even a vocal standpoint Yeah. with uh, Robert Smith, because he's like a different vocalist here than, than what he became later. Mm-hmm. Like the style, the attack, his cadence delivery on these tracks are kind of, you know, they're familiar with other like bands of that era. Like it doesn't, he doesn't set himself aside. Whereas what he evolved into like later in their later records was a little more of almost like this crooner style of singing. There's like more sustain and like a different like luster to his voice. So it's interesting just as a document to hear that this is where he started because he's, he was like a very different singer even at this time. There are moments like on certain songs, like, like you said on the title track where you, you hear just like a preview of, of like his approach later on. But see, to me, I think as a vocalist, he's he's definitely one of the more influential singers, especially when I hear contemporary bands who like have the influence of The Cure, whether yeah. it's a post-punk new wave thing or even the goth thing. I feel like I hear a lot of singers emulate Robert Smith, you know, but, now that but not this version of him, the later no. version of him. <laughs> well, I, I feel like we mentioned, I'd mentioned this band too much. It's like Spike, know a different band already. But <laughs> I, now that you're saying that, I could hear Robert Smith and David Leo Pepe. Like I can certainly yeah. hear later Robert Smith in him. The you crooner know? kind yes. of style, which we, like what David talked about that, like he, I, that was cool. I have to say just a little callback to that, that he actually loves those crooner vocalist like Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. And he was, I think comparing him to Sinatra was the moment that got him to stay for 70 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. He was all in at that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he's probably answered so many questions about being compared to like Springsteen or something or you two. And we were like, yeah, you're, we never even brought that up. That never even came up. I don't think. (laughs) And we were like Sinatra and Elvis. And like, he lit up. He was like Sinatra. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and to me it's it's a it's a good parallel with Robert Smith because mm-hmm. that's what I love about Robert Smith as a singer because I just I love that style, and and there aren't that many singers that can do that in with the kind of like sonic backdrop that that a lot of the Cure's later records have. Also, like just musically, you were kind of mentioning this. This is different sonically. Like I'm used to hearing more lush productions yep. around the Cure. Like I, I I'm not like a Cure expert, but they're one of those bands that even if I've never done a deep dive, like I, I pretty much dig everything of theirs that I've heard. Yeah. But again, this is like a different era, I guess, or a different, different phase, early phase. And you can hear now that I, I think back that, you know, the Cure that I know, if you think, you think of like a song like Friday I'm in Love or something. Yeah, has, that's, a, that's the first song of theirs I ever heard. I love that song. Stays gray and Wednesday too. 
It's a great tune. There are elements of that song to this song, you know, I, I, to this era, I think. It's almost like the bridge, it's like a B-52s bridge or something. You know, like if you go from Friday I'm in Love to the B-52s, which you could imagine, you could get to this from that, I think. Hmm. But like when you think about, yeah, I mentioned Fascination Street or, or Love Song or, or something like that, then that, it's a, a very difficult place. And even, I, I wonder what they looked like at the time because imagery, I remember seeing them and even to this day, and they're talking about, I think they're recording and Robert Smith is doing another album. They haven't recorded an album since 08, but I think they're, they're in the process of putting together another album. Visually, it was very dark and very goth. Like you, when you think of The Cure, that's how you think of Robert Smith. Like Robert Smith, almost like a Edward Scissorhands in, in some way, you know? Like I, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what- I hadn't thought of that, but it actually- Yeah, it's there. They should have, he should have played Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> he would have been great. He would've that would have been, been a, I mean, no disrespect to Johnny Depp or disrespect, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, no, Johnny Depp is a great actor, whatever- Whatever's happening right now, uh, I won't comment on that. Yeah, we, who knows? We don't, we don't need knows? to get into that. But yeah. he is a great actor. But actually, wow. Maybe they can do a, another version of it. They could do it. a British version of it. Maybe that's Johnny Depp's comeback as is an is a, a English remake of Edward Scissorhands. I got it. Edward oh, wait, Scissorhands it wouldn't be Johnny musical. Depp's comeback. It would be Robert Smith. I don't know. Yeah. Robert Smith, he's put on a couple of pounds since. That's all right. You think? He, he you can, think look, he's gonna... just hear me out on this. Okay. Okay. Edward Scissorhands remake as a musical Ooh. with Cure songs. Robert Smith sings songs. He's also Edward Scissorhands at the same time. What do you I think? I just, look, not everything <laughs> visually needs to be exactly the same, but I think of Johnny Depp ad as Edward Scissorhands, and I, I seem to remember him being in a very tight black outfit, wasn't it? I mean, uh, so you're saying the tight outfit? Well, well, we can change the wardrobe a little bit. No big yeah, deal. Yeah, it's more smocky, is what Robert Smith has going on right now. It it's could like be more of a long, flowing sort of. Robe, it could be. You know? He could have a robe. Who who says it needs to be exactly the same? Look, the American version of The Office was different than the British version exactly. of The Office. So the, exactly. the British version of Edward Scissorhands, for some reason, <laughs> will star Robert Smith. With Cure songs as the soundtrack, and I'm telling Pure you, songs. people so will love it. You've always liked post-punk or more than me. I think there's parts of it. That you, did you dig this album, or 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 is it more just a sort of a historical landmark to you? I think I liked it maybe more than you did because I liked that sound. You know what it made me think of? Like I like the the vibe you get on this record, where it sounds like three or four musicians in a room playing together there's not there's minimal overdubs mm -hmm. it sounds like there's a lot of live tracking going on and it kind of reminded me of in that way although the the television marquee moon record which is their debut too was more polished mm -hmm. this reminded me of that like uh i just i i always dig it when you can hear when you can see the kind of you can visualize a picture of the band playing the songs live in the studio and it doesn't always work but i think what goes to that like for example they do the uh Foxy Lady cover, you know? Oh, yeah. The Hendrix cover. And by the way, Robert Smith does not sing on that track and didn't want the track on the album. It doesn't surprise me because yeah. 
first off, you hear them talking for like 20, 30 seconds at the top of it, like figuring yeah. it out. And then I kind of like it because it's such a bizarre take on that song. But it sounds like it was like a rehearsal yes. thing that they just decided to throw on. But that's part of the charm of it. Now, I'm thinking this bonus, this deluxe version is interesting because especially what you read about his comments about this, how it didn't turn out the way he envisioned it. When you hear his home demo of 10, 15 Saturday night, that's a different kind of track. That sounds more like a lo-fi version of what The Cure became. If you listen to that right. demo, it's like it's there's more of a haunting thing to it. There's kind of an organ. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why didn't they do that on the record? Because that actually would have made that song even more interesting to me. So it sounds like whatever ideas he had were almost peeled away. So in, in, in a strange way, I think the deluxe version actually gives you a different look on this album because it's interesting to hear some of the different iterations of those songs. That one in particular, it sounds closer to what the sound of The Cure would be identified as, you know? Yeah, and as a heads up, a lot of times when you go, the, this is one of the the positives and negatives of listening to albums online, like Spotify, is that a lot of times the only version of the album that is there is the reissue, which the remastered reissue, which is fine, whatever. But a lot of times there are extra tracks on there that you, you don't, like you have to investigate where the album actually ends. You know, because sometimes we've done an album and there have been, I think even last time we, we talked, whatever, whatever album we were talking about, maybe two albums ago, there were like, oh, when we were talking about Sunny Day Real Estate, there were a few albums on the reissue that were on the remaster that were not on the original one. And it can sort of screw up the context of the entire album. I know people now don't think of albums as much as, as works, but just a a heads up that if you're going to listen to an older album and that it's a reissue on Spotify, notice where the, the album actually ends. And by the way, the new new Cure album is called Songs of a Lost World and will come out this year. So wow. there you go. Yeah, and on this reissue, it's like you have to kind of like separate the two. The first yeah. 13 tracks are the original album. And I don't know why Spotify does that. They should still have like, okay, here's the original version, just 13 tracks. Mm -hmm. And then deluxe, but in in this case, I think you they only have the deluxe up there. But I actually think it serves a purpose because mm -hmm. knowing now that Robert Smith doesn't like a lot of the renditions of the approach, you actually hear some alternate versions that the record could have maybe been. You know, I, I do think also like there are some songs that even with this like more post punk kind of sound do hold up to me. I like the lead track, well, ten fifteen Saturday night, but uh, grinding halt I think is the third song. That song just feels like, you know, he's got like the punk rock attitude in it. It's got that sort of great economy of lyrics. That's one thing I do like that he does here, and I think he does it in general. I'm just thinking like Friday, Friday, I'm in love. Yeah, he doesn't write a lot of words. Even that song I was talking about, Another Day, like has 
it's not verbose. Right. It's like he's he's really good at getting his message across with with fewer words. Yeah, it's like that economy of of lyric writing. It mm-hmm. always makes me think like the conversation we have with Marion Hill with like Jeremy. He's he's always thinking of like how can I make this track with the fewest work with the fewest possible elements. I'm a fan of that like with production, but also lyric writing. A lot of times, if you if you kind of peel away the excess, and you can make something work with in the simplest way and with the fewest possible elements, a lot of the most undeniable songs work that way. And I think he does that pretty consistently here, like throughout the record. So lyrically, there's some really great stuff on here. Like, well, this is a really weird song, but Meat Hook. Yes. Meat Hook is a very bizarre, but oddly compelling song. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you locked it on that I didn't one look at the, I didn't lock in on the, are the lyrics bizarre? Yeah. Like there's lines like there's a meat hook in my heart. It's te- <laughs> it's tearing me all apart. It's ripping out my insides, but I can't. I just can't get away. Well, that's now, a that's a teenager lyric. It's pretty dark, but it's it's you know it's 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 cryptic. It's I don't know. It's just it's jarring it's very, in a weird kind of way when you hear it. I, it's very I, emo. It, well, that's the other thing I was thinking was this makes me think of some of the emo bands we've discussed. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like a teenage angst. Mm-hmm. Element, but there's still like a bright poppiness underneath it too, because there's always a melodic element to these songs that that works. It made me think of some of the emo bands we've discussed. I don't know if there's really like a connection or a parallel, or if emo bands like view The Cure as like a, a big influence. But I, there's there's some kind of thread with at least this version of The Cure with some of the bands we've discussed. Yeah, I think lyrically, there's probably there's definitely a through that you could you could draw a through line there to to the way bands like Taking Back Sunday or or Dashboard or, or any of those that era of of emo bands. I, I think you could definitely and emo came from punk and hardcore. Like there's all there's all these different like you know tentacles that that probably if, if you uh, six degrees of kevin bacon away you could probably find a connection to it so i i thought it was it was interesting to listen to this album i'm glad we listened to it i did not know wh- that the cure had ever done an album like this and i'm sort of excited for them to put out you know another record it's been almost 15 years since they put out an album so they're a cool band they're definitely a cool band and a i you know, a band worth mentioning. I, I'm going to pick Disintegration at some point because I listened to that album this morning too. What a cool album that is. What a fucking dark album that is. And How much a, further in a, the catalog is that? That's like several albums it's, later, right? It's 89, so it's oh, probably it's like their, their seventh or eighth album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then right in the heart of my music consumption, you know, explosion when I was... 12 years old or 13 years old that came out and I fucking loved I loved that album that's when every band I saw came to the spectrum when more bands could do there were more arena tours and things like that not just like the seven biggest bands in the world and the bands that have been around for 40 years but there were more bands that, that could do tours like that do you know Haim just played MSG I heard about that uh, yeah I heard about well, they're doing a whole arena tour. I mean, yeah. They're, yes, I guess I didn't realize they were an arena act, but it doesn't actually surprise me. I mean, they 
been ascending towards that like superstar. It's unbelievable without a, without any hits. It's incredible. It's it's just the, the, the incredible. And Faye Webster opened up, and I got offered ah. tickets, and I could yeah, I couldn't go. I couldn't go. It sucked. I was very angry that I couldn't go. We should try to. That's another uh, bucket list guest. We should try to get her on. That'd Faye be, Webster would be yeah, because awesome. that was one of the early records we did. If yeah. I yeah, the uh, Atlanta Millionaires Club. What yeah. a cool album. Oh, the coolest. Yeah. All right, you want to do uh, Brand New Heavies, which was yeah. a Mootloo pick from 1992? We are, we are hold right into the 90s Rock in our the choices. 90s, baby. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Big rough neck respect to all the bad boy and all the bad boy croak. A jammer lock in a past show with past shows like a volcanic eruption. Ribbit. Me ball jump and move and jump and move and jump and move and stop. Follow me. Jump and move and jump and move and jump and move and stop. Now, this is going to jump and I'm a rough neck MC. This was 100% a nostalgia pick for me. Uh, and I decided to pick it, I was inspired to pick it after we did Guru's Jazzmatazz because mm-hmm. I always kind of associated these two records. This came out in 92, uh, Jazzmatazz came out in 93, and, you know, Guru features on this one. Right I off the top, or second song, right? Guru's second on. song, yeah. After yeah. The main source is the first one, and then uh, Large Professor, main source, first one, and then Guru. But... I'll say listening back now, uh, I still love it because it's like we always talk about how like music kind of tethers you to your memories or certain moments in time. And I remember like just rocking this on my CD, man, you know, just <laughs> bumping this like, you know, I just remember I, I, I have like visuals of like listening to this and just like this album being a revelation. But to me, it maybe doesn't hold up as well now as it as it did to me at that time oh in a really way, well, well because it's not to me it's not really like a cohesive album it's a compilation which i think right. if you view it that way it's great yeah you know it's like a it's a compilation of artists with brand new heavies as the backing group yeah um, yeah yeah it is uh, to me it, there's like five songs that go together almost right it, 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 you know the Guru one, the Far Side one, like the the Cool Mo D one, like the the classic eighties to nineties. Maybe the Black Sheep, guy. I think, fits the, into that. The Black uh, Sheep, yeah, and you could do those. And then there's there's some other stuff in there that that doesn't that that are skippers for me. But that's interesting that you said that it didn't hold up. It was funny when it got to the second song. I was like, wait a minute, that sounds like Guru. And I was like, it is. I was like, are we just gonna do Guru records? Records? Yeah, every, we're every just time? gonna keep bringing him up, man. And we're even going to pick another Gangstar record at some point. Yeah. But All like, right. see, whereas Jazzmatazz holds up in a way that it's more of a complete mm-hmm. album statement, uh, this is more like a compilation. But but I think for me, what was special about this album was this was the first time I remember hearing hip hop artists working with a live band. Mm, uh, it was yeah. early on. I'm sure there were other groups doing it at the time, maybe even before. But you, this was recorded like late 91, 92. And then you had Guru's Jazzmatazz. And right around that time, you had The Roots with Organics and Do You Want More around 93, 94. But this was a revelation to me in the fact that these were some of my favorite hip-hop artists. And it was the first. And to hear them working with this live band, it's almost like, you know, a new iteration of the meters or something. That was just something that was totally yep. new to me at the time. So give a little backdrop on Brand New Heavies. Formed in London in 1985 by... Drummer, vocalist Jan Kincaid, guitarist Simon Bartholomew. Wow. And bassist, yes. Sounds and like bass, a fake name. No, that's real. That's mm. a Simon Bartholomew and, mm. and a great Suspicious. guitarist. Suspicious. Uh, okay. A great funky guitarist, yeah. You're not by, you, every once in a while this happens, you, I, a name comes up and you somehow don't believe it's real. 
I, that's a weird. That's a that's a thing I've noticed. You you've done that like a, but it's always arbitrary. Like why is this always, one not real? It goes back to college. One moment in college. So, so uh, <laughs> it's I'll I'll tell you why I do this. So go back to college. We had a very small friend group. It was me, my friend JT, who worked at the college radio station with me. Um, our friend Nick B. Nick B is now uh, the VP of late night for CBS, works with Ooh. the James Corden show and Nick Bernstein, shout out Nick. And my friend, our friend Andy Hecht, who went on the air as Andy Lawrence. So, and Andy, I don't know where Andy is now. Maybe Andy's in Miami or something. So it was like junior year and there was a girl that lived on, we, we lived in these off-campus apartments, but they were owned by the university. And there were like strips of like eight apartments. It was called South Campus in Syracuse. And there was a girl like four, four apartments down that I liked. Ended up being like my best friend, never dated Brooke, but ended up being my, my best friend for, for several years. So they see me hanging out with her and Andy goes, who's that? And I'm like, oh, that's Brooke. And he raises his eyebrow like this, like, like, like puzzled, like didn't believe it. And he goes, uh, Brooke, huh? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, hmm, that's not her name. And I'm like, what? And he goes, girls get to college. They change their names. He's like, there's no way her name is Brooke. And I'm like, what a silly, wait, wait, hold on. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what a silly thing to say. So I was like, her name is Brooke, man, whatever. So maybe two, three years later, I'm at her apartment and her, her driver's license is sitting on the table and it says a Katie, like B Jennings or something. And I was wow. like, I was like, what is this? And she was like, what do you mean? It's my license. And I was like, your name is Katie? She was, yeah, my middle name's uh, Brooke, but I, I, like, I, I go by Brooke. Like, wow, he was right. He was, was right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, and, but the middle like, name wasn't on the license, right? So maybe it is maybe it is her middle name. Well, it is her middle name, but but look. But I mean that's he, fair. He you was, can use he, the middle name. I mean You it's can, not, but he was right deal. he was right enough. He was right. right enough. Brooke sounds cooler than Katie does, especially at college. Who knows if she was known as Brooke in it, like I never investigated it further. All I know, and look, Andy may have said this 500 times, right? And was only right once, but I know about the one right time. So to this day, if a name sounds suspicious, I always will yeah, say. Yeah, the red flag goes up. Yeah, so there's a, <laughs> Not there's, their a name. there's a past like personal history to why, like instinctively something just. Correct. So why I think names are fake. So <laughs> thereby guitarist Simon Bartholomew I'm assuming Just, that's his real name. Spike has his doubts. Look, all I'm saying is I wouldn't be surprised if there was some shadiness there. That's right. all I'm saying. That's all maybe I'm saying. Maybe the first there. name or last name is is made I don't up. Know. Both. Look, totally. I'm just I'm just I'm just I'm just asking questions. So his right? name might like, be Ron Davis, but I'm it, just asking it, questions. Just ask a question. Fair enough. So but at the getting back to it, rewind right, getting back to it. <laughs> rewinding back to the core. Yes. Drummer, vocalist, Jan Kincaid, guitarist, Simon Bartholomew, <laughs> and bassist, keyboardist, Andrew Levy. Now, at the core of Brand New Heavy's, uh, Simon Bartholomew mm -hmm. and Andrew Levy have always been there from day one and, and continue to be to the present day because they continue to make records and tour, play shows. But in the original incarnation of the group, it was really 
a sound and aesthetic that was inspired by instrumental units, like 70s instrumental units, like the Meters, who we've discussed, or the JBs, the uh, the instrumental uh, collective that backed up James Brown. And if you're a fan of James Brown, there's some great compilations of just the JBs, just his, basically, his backing musicians. Not dissimilar to, like, the albums that the Meters made that were instrumental records, but when you think of those records, those Meters records, JB's records, they were like a treasure trove of sampling for early hip-hop artists. I mean, these, James Brown, JB's, the Meters were sampled so many times, and in a way, it's interesting that uh, Brand New Heavies kind of emulated those groups. They started out as an instrumental unit, but evolved into a group that could back up so many different types of vocalists, and that's what they've done. Mm -hmm. So they came up in the London scene in the 80s that was called the Rare Groove scene, which then sort of evolved in the 90s into the acid jazz scene. The acid jazz scene uh, was what brought us, you know, Jamiroquai, Incognito, Us Three, and I love Jamiroquai, one of my favorite groups, but it's kind of a loosely defined sound. It kind of has a number of different elements. It could be funk, soul, hip hop. Some of the groups lean a little heavier towards, you know, disco and jazz. If you think of like Jamiroquai, Mm -hmm. uh, earlier on they had more of the jazz influence and Later, even more the disco influence, but basically, and we it was did a Jamiroquai scene. Records? Yeah, we we did Jamiroquai, right? Yeah, we, we did, did the third yeah. one, the big, yep. uh, the one, the one record that really hit here, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Travel without moving. Yep. But so it's kind of a loosely defined sound, more of a scene of bands that they kind of were right at the core of. So, sort of start as a rare groove scene into the acid jazz scene. They started to build up a really dedicated following in the London club circuit. Eventually, they added a horn section and a vocalist, J. Ella Ruth. And interestingly enough, they signed to the indie label that was called Acid Jazz. So they dropped their debut record in 1990, wins critical acclaim in the UK, hits number 25 on the UK album chart. So they, in the UK in particular, they've had a lot of commercial success. Maybe not as much so here, but through the different collaborations with different artists they've done, they've they've been a chart band, uh, or at least they were in the earlier part of their career. So... Eventually, J. Ella Ruth leaves, and then they start working with Nadia Davenport, American vocalist, and they did a, a sort of a new version of their debut album for the U.S. They re-recorded some of the tracks. Now, Nadia Davenport uh, worked with them early on, has worked with them in more recent years, and she was also featured on Jazzmatazz, just another Jazzmatazz connection, although she's not on this record, but featured on Jazzmatazz. Now, the way this record came up was they were playing a show in New York around this time, around 1991, and uh, Q-Tip from Tribe Called Quest and MC Search kind of featured with them. And it really just was like a hit. It just connected with the crowd in such a way that they got inspired to make this record. This is basically, at least by the U.S. releases, their second album. So it's interesting that this record came so early in their career. Like, they were one of the first bands, I think, that really saw the potential of that hip-hop live kind of setup. A year since then, they've released nine more albums. They've released live recordings, compilations. They've worked with so many different vocalists, Nadia Davenport, Sita Garrett, Carlene Anderson, Cy Smith. They work with a lot of different producers. Like They've more recently uh, collaborated with Mark Ronson, which you can hear their sound hmm. in Mark Ronson style, how that would work, you know? Yeah. But this record came early on. And again, at the core of it, it's always been your guys, Simon Bartholomew and Andrew Levy, but when you look at the list of musicians that have played in this band, it's a long list of musicians. So you have a few core players and sort of a revolving cast of, of musicians. But getting back to this record, this is essentially their second release, at least in the U.S. I think recorded in 91, came out early 92. I'll give a few just highlights of mine. 
I know we kind of mentioned some of the tracks already, but I think Bonafide Funk, the first track, really sets the tone just right for this album. Just in the way that, you know, Guru's intro and lounging set the mood for Jazzmatazz. I think that record does it here with a large professor. It's kind of cool because you hear them laying down this groove, but then you also hear the DJs come in, K-Cut and Sir Scratches. They kind of mix in some of the turntable aesthetics. Hey, yo, wait a minute. We got the heavies in the crib putting the funk back in it. And if you know the main source, you know my man K-Cut and him and Simon's going to show you what's up. Get the other man on the scratches, search scratches, like his hands are two hatches, while Andrew plucks on the base. I'm gonna let And even in some of the lyrics that Large Professor drops, he's talking about, you know, brand new heavies play the shit that people used to listen to in 70s Chevys, and you know, he's talking about like this is a fresh thing, the live the live band kind of aesthetic. So that that song kind of gives you like the musical DNA of the whole mm-hmm. record. Then of course the next track, probably my favorite, uh, it's getting hectic featuring Gangstar, featuring Guru. I set it off by letting you know that I can flow to many beats Similar to fluid so freely And you could say I'm getting kind of greedy But so what? Cause I'm supplying the needy Well some MCs go for therapy I bury the remains of the others Cause they suck incredibly Superficial It's interesting when you hear that one Because when you think of Jazzmatazz He went heavier into the jazz direction But there's something about Guru's voice His style that just works with a live band It's like I think an it instrument it's like his yeah. voice is like an instrument, you know? Yeah, yeah. And more and, and I think it works better with some MCs than others. I think some MCs are better in the concept of a classic kind of beat, you know, classic kind of production, whether it's sampled or played live, but just more of a a standard hip hop production. Some artists like Black Dot, I'd say from the roots, Guru, there's something about their voice with the live band that just works and you hear that on the second track. And then one other highlight I'll say, which is the last track, is Soul Flower, Far Side, because I love the Far Side, just the way they work vocally. and the organ work against each other or with each other on that song is just so locked in and then at the end they have like the kind of vocal group drum percussion breakdown uh, that's probably actually it's between that and the gangstar collaboration is probably my two favorites on the record but yeah it's it's you made a good point it's like there's some songs that feel like it could have been an ep that would have maybe been gangstar and far side and black sheep and then there's some other songs but overall it's a fun listen it's only 35 minutes if you're not familiar with that kind of era of like early 90s hip-hop or with those artists. I don't think you necessarily have to know that era to like still enjoy what's happening in this one. Yeah, th- this is a incredibly 90s-sounding, you know, yeah. early 90s. It's almost it, dated, right? In a sense, yeah, it's sort of not, dated Yeah, not in a, a bad way. Like, there's a... Sometimes you want to know what things sounded like then. It Like, it provides context of the era, I think. This is... It's obvious to say this, but the entire thing sounds 
like organic and analog. Like there's a an enormous difference between having a produced hip hop track and a live band in there. And what this album does, I think, and what they do by providing the live instrumentation in there is that every song sounds like a party and a jam, but like is is completely fleshed out. Like it doesn't sound sloppy and it doesn't sound like they're just in there figuring it out as they go along, but it sounds like there's so many musicians in there playing live that are all sort of like in the pocket with each other and that they, and I think is why Guru is so good in there because his, like sonically, his voice sits in that groove very well and does not overpower the song. He's an amazing artist and he's an amazing rapper because he, his voice is so signature and so powerful, but it does not overpower anything that that he's on a track with, right? Like right. he rides along with with the song and the production, which is why him and Premier is all, is like such a perfect combination because of how he raps. So I think every song sounds like a party, and even like in so many tracks, there's like people yelling almost in the background that is obviously like part of the production, but almost paints a picture. Uh, right. of what was happening when they were recording it too. So, and I'm, I'm actually curious about the recording of it, how much, like if the, if the raps were recorded live with the band at any point, like, or if they recorded the track and gave it to the, the rapper and the rapper rapped over it, but I would, it would be neat to see if it was recorded live. It feels know? like the MCs you are in the room with them, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, yes. It could very well be that they tracked and yeah. the vocals were recorded separately, but there are moments where like you said, you kind of see the picture. It feels like an extension of a live show, but yep. a very organized sort of coordinated thing. It doesn't feel like just like a 8-minute jam where there's verses going on. There's there's a construction to the songs. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's interesting to listen back to this is like 30, you know, record came out 30 years ago when you think of, you know, live the live band hip hop thing has been done by so many people at this point. But at that time, this was something that was really kind of on the vanguard. It was pushing the envelope. You hadn't really heard MCs doing this kind of thing, you know, on a record that had a pretty big exposure. You know, again, I would say then you had the roots came with organics and do you want more? They kind of took it like a step further. Yep. Because especially those early records of theirs were very jazz influenced and and just like Guru, I think Black Dot had that same ability. And he's a good singer, too, so he could kind of weave in of just, just out of the straight-up rhyme thing and sing. And, but this, this is like, this is kind of, I think, an inter interesting music, musical document as far as, you know, that hip-hop live band kind of collaboration. The other two songs, Who Makes a Loot, Grand Pooba is awesome. Oh, and yeah. Let me lighten up the brief honey spell grand poober when they want to spell relief. Who is the man more than a hundred grand? Give a pound to a friend, put a two to a clan. Damn. Bang, 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 Jimmy Coco Puff. Who is the one who gives you enough? Don't answer. Here comes the flavor. And you want to act for grand poober gave you. Uh, it's Death Threat, Cool G Rap. Is it Cool G Rap? Is yeah. that who's on Death Threat? Yep. Yeah. Cool. Was it? Was it was Cool G Rap and DJ Polo. Those were the two. Those guys were together, right? Wasn't they had a great run. Guys? Yeah. Yeah. Kind yeah, of during did. that golden era, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. The song's called Death Threat, and that that song has a guitar line in it that is awesome. That almost sounds like a sample, but is not as obviously not a sample. 
and just adds so much like energy and tempo and again like it's it's having an instrument in there playing that is creating that vibe but that's an awesome song too yeah and it's like that's a good point like there's other moments that one others where the instrumental lines are kind of like hooks in and of themselves it's yep. not always the there's kind of vocal hooks but a lot of times there's just something immediate about whatever line it's being played that goes to the fact that it's like it feels loose but there's something more coordinated or there's a clear arrangement to the songs you know it's like if something's just a jam you're not going to have those kind of instrumental loops that almost sound like they could have been sampled but it's it's almost like they're trying to emulate it's interesting like when you think of someone like Premier would sample funk tracks or jazz tracks and would kind of approximate the sound of what a band could do and then you hear a band kind of approximating what the beat would do it's this weird yeah. inverse kind of thing so to me I just love that they carry on that tradition of a band like the Meters you know, when you think about the meters, like we, mm-hmm. the record we did discuss was all instrumental, but they worked with so many different singers and in so many different contexts, like a group that you can just move into different situations and they're always just going to provide the perfect backdrop, no matter what the context is. Like that's, it's, it seems simple, but it's not, it requires a very particular set of musicians that can do that. We, uh, that's it. Uh, if you'd like to suggest an album, we've gotten a, a bunch of suggestions actually over the last week or two, but go to carlandryrecordclub.com or the Apple Podcast Reviews. Leave it in there. Leave five stars. Don't even think about leaving less. It helps people find the show, makes us feel good. Also gets you a better chance to get your album on the pod. And also Twitter at CLRCPod. If you suggest there, we will take them as well. And uh, otherwise, we will see you next week or we will see you November 19th. Later. Stay free, my goose.